journey was it's pretty smooth I feel like very much smooth I feel like we figured out the kinks <laughs> in the journey at the beginning couple cancellations trying to throw a few yeah. uh, curveballs but no we're here gosh we're in front of a really grand building um, which I think I was expecting and as we pulled up in our taxi uh, and he tried to find somewhere to park I was just like okay this is a, this big old building I'm excited to go inside and yeah I'm excited to see what's inside too Hi, I'm the writer Caleb Azuma-Nelson. Hi, I'm Esme Orman, a theatre maker and poet and also Caleb's partner. We're at the Bristol Museum and Art Gallery and this is... Meet Meet Me at at the the Museum. museum. (laughs) Yes! So we are in what I assume is kind of the, the foyer area. There's art everywhere. You can hear that like echo that you get in art galleries and in museums of other people's voices but also your own I'm just really intrigued by this wonderful kind of illustration slash poster slash I don't quite know what that is of two people uh, one of them's a wheelchair user holding a placard that says not one more uh, and the other one is standing behind them saying unity and love and equality yeah great message all kind of drawn in on black and white um, really brilliant illustration I think it really speaks to I guess my interpretation of Bristol as a city that is incredibly uh, just politically aware just even on the way here seeing the climate change protests and yeah yeah there in this area there are two big murals either side uh, on the left hand side you've you've got this enormous one which just covers the whole wall which is in colour and then there's the reflection of one on the other side which is in black and white it's draw, like drawing my attention both both ways. I'm excited to come back and, and kind of look a bit more into them. Hello and welcome to Bristol Museum and Art Gallery. We're free to enter, but with your national art pass, you'll get 50% off all exhibitions. Cool, perfect. Let's let's get going. I think we like to go to a lot of museums, galleries art exhibitions and then generally just kind of soak up culture yeah (laughs) i was gonna try and find a way to say that without sounding a bit pretentious but i enjoy doing it with you i think we um we have different takings and then we just kind of chop it up afterwards about what we've seen and what we noticed and there's something really special about being able to do that with you um just because i you know value your outlook on the world and i also think that you have very good taste I mean you've introduced me to a lot of photographers and artists that I otherwise wouldn't have have known about I've been excited to to make our way to to Bristol but the main reason for visiting Bristol Museum and Art Gallery was the James Barner exhibition it's called Ghanaian Modernist and it centers around James Barner's work he is a photographer from Ghana where I'm also from came to the UK in the 60s and kind of like made a real name for for himself as one of the first photographers uh, to shoot Africa in colour. He shoots on the film the same way that I do, uh, which is really special. There's a real texture to it that you can see. It kind of holds the weight of time and history, which I think is is always really amazing. But for me, like Ghana is not not a place that's directly home but perhaps a way of thinking and seeing and I think that that's very much reflected in the way that James Barner takes and makes his images I can I can really see the way that I think and feel and see too 
So we're in the room where James Barner's photographs are being exhibited. We've got like a section of colour and then black and white as well, images that are hung all around us. So my auntie is a fashion designer and a few years ago she wanted to put on a supper club with an exhibition as well. And she said that there was a photographer who had agreed to give her some of his images just because he was Ghanaian and she, like we're also Ghanaian. And she took me to meet this kind of like slightly older guy who lived in West London and it was James Barnett. And so I went round to his house and he has this like big cupboard full of every image that he's ever taken. And it was one of the most special moments, like just kind of, so a couple of these I've seen before, but, um, but only in a sort of like frenzied passing, being like, can we have that one and that one? Um, and he was just so kind and generous. He was just like, yeah, take them, just bring them back if that's okay. Yeah, which was, yeah, really special. And I wasn't aware of like him or like his influence on photography, like full stop. And there's definitely something that, like, I feel like we share, not in, like, the specific style of photography, but perhaps the way that he looks out at the world. Oh, this photo is called Baptism Celebration and was taken in 1960 in London. I think this is quite funny because the first people I notice are on the right-hand side of the photo. Which one? Smoking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just think it's so funny that these people were caught, you know, kind of mid-cigarette, mm. either kind of glare, you know, both of them are glaring at the mm. camera and trying to finish off their uh, their cigarettes. But it's gorgeous. It's really, I mean, it's really interesting just to see all of these mainly black men with their sunglasses on. <laughs> so in the photo, uh, there's quite a few people. The baby who's being baptised is being held by their godmother uh, in the bottom left. The baby is black. Uh, their godmother is white and then there's a kind of mixture of mostly black people but also uh, white people as well who are in this portrait and they're all kind of crowded on this doorstep uh, of this London home and kind of crowding out and spilling out onto onto the steps and just right in the left-hand corner we've got this kind of flash of this really old-fashioned car in the front (laughs) of it and actually having said that I feel like this person might be of Asian descent, so it's a real mashup of people, maybe emblematic of what kind of London was at that time in the 60s. It's a whole mishmash here. But it's wonderful just to see people kind of caught (laughs) mid-laughter. Or just not looking. Not looking. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this, this selection that we're looking at at the moment is when he arrived in London from Accra, from Ghana, in 19... I think it was 1960, I'd like to say. He was here for 10 years, if memory serves correct, before going back. I think he like, studied a bit more photography over here because he had studied in Ghana and talks about the first thing that he was here being like really positive and enjoyable. And I feel like this photo is sort of like a, like a symbol of that, like... For me, I'm always intrigued in like not just what you can see in the image, but perhaps what the photographer has given to the to this moment. And this just looks really joyous. So we're looking at the an image, Remmer Nelson, which is a test shot for Drum Magazine. It's taken at Battersea Park uh, in 1960. I didn't know about Drum Magazine before I found out that James Bonner like worked for them in. 
the 60s and shot a lot of covers, mostly of models. This is, this one has like a very arresting gaze, even though it is really informal. It is black and white image, square, so it's probably taken on a medium format camera, like I use, which like it frames people in very specific ways. It just like kind of gives them more room in, in the image. And it is of a young woman eating candy floss and she's staring directly into the lens or perhaps directly at the photographer. I feel like a lot of my, like 90% of my work is like, is portraiture. Like I've always just been drawn to people and like what like this kind of middle part of your face will tell about you, like your eyes and just like the way that you're like holding the gaze. And it's like, I think like we were describing, like we were saying earlier, like it's nice to kind of see something and realize that you've been influenced by it. Um, I definitely think it's been a massive influence on me. It's really like palpable how much care goes into James Barner's work. Like, I think that's the word that always comes to mind, like generosity, I think, but, but really care, like it feels like he, is not only holding those in front of him, but also holding himself accountable to hold those in front of him too. Um, and that, yeah, that for me is something that, I've, that I want to be like employing more in my practice. My first introduction in a kind of gallery slash museum space to James Varner's work was with you, um, just because that is something that I feel like has been by me kind of accessed either in books or online. Um, and so it was really gorgeous to see these, you know, the, see it in the flesh. It's, you know, they became tangible, they became really real. And to also listen to you talk about the work, because I think that that's something that's of such value to me, is that hearing you talk about the work and the art and the photography that inspires you is just really wonderful to hear. It's Julia here, uh, curator of modern and contemporary art at the museum. Lovely to meet you both. Thanks for coming along. Have you had any favourites looking at looking around the exhibition? This is one of the first James Barnett images I saw, which I always think is just fantastic. I think the detail of the hair, yeah. the fact the woman is looking away, mm. the patterns on her dress, the background. I just think it's such a um, it's an image that really feels like it has so much attention to detail. Yeah. And that's why I really enjoy it. Uh, so this image is called Studio Ever Young uh, Hairstyle uh, and was taken in Accra uh, in 1954. Um, and the image is of uh, a kind of sole black woman sat uh, in the centre of the image uh, with these really gorgeous twists in her hair, kind of almost twisted cane rows. And this really gorgeous kind of detail, This, I guess it's a smudge by her ear and this patterned flower dress which is sleeveless, so there's kind of, you can see the, I guess, the contrast against her complexion, um, and it's in black and white. Um, so, yeah, it's just fantastic. It's such yeah. a great image. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about you. I just think it's such a wonderful choice to have had it blown up as well as kind of the, mm -hmm. maybe the standout, particularly on this wall. Yeah. And there's also something to be said, because I think when you came in, you were talking about the colours of the walls, and I think that there's something really gorgeous about having put a black and white image against a grey background. For 
five large scale images of the female models and then a, a smaller one, but all in, in the glorious colour that he, he pioneered when, when, when working initially at Medway College and then coming back to Accra. It feels a bit like he was rediscovered around that time, doesn't it? I mean, he'd had this amazing career, he called himself Lucky Jim, because he'd been <laughs> in the right place where things were happening at particular times, the independence of Ghana, then coming to London and photographing the African and Caribbean diaspora settling into London. Um, I think Barna's also important for... He was one of the first photographers to put a, a black model on the cover of a fashion magazine. And somehow all of this was sort of a bit hidden by the turn of the 20th century. So we're really lucky to, to, that he's been rediscovered, partly by your aunt, <laughs> by the sound of it. And um, I'm really great that we've had the opportunity to have this exhibition here. Yeah, there's something so gorgeous about particularly what film photography presents to an audience. And I was thinking of the talk I was listening to earlier this week between Bell Hooks and Arthur Jaffer, and he said something that she really, she picked up on, she really poked at. He talked about the white gaze kind of always being present in photography. And she went, well, how, how does that work out? Even Because he said, even if it's, you know, a black person behind the lens... And he went, well, the nature of photography is kind of surveillance and was kind of born from that. And I thought, oh, kind of how interesting. I think initially that sounds like, you know, kind of like a total critique or criticism of, of using photography as an art form. But I actually thought, oh, actually, that presents a lot of space to really be conscious of how you look upon, particularly in portraiture, upon the, the people that you capture and I was thinking about how that works in other art forms, that observation that can quite quickly sometimes meld into maybe a voyeurism or a skewed perspective. And I just, yeah, there's so much in that. I think it's so rich and, yeah, just ask questions of yourself that I think are really important in, in just generally having a creative practice of any kind because you engage with people. <laughs> you like to have a look at some of the photographs of um, Accra just around the time of independence, yeah, some absolutely. of the early works? Um, your favourite is, is that image, but I think this particular image called Print in Progress from 1972. So this is, this is a black and white image from the studio that he set up when he returned to Accra from London. And um, what I love about it, it shows, the, shows an image of a woman with braided hair, um, and it shows a second image sort of developing in the tray. So it shows the tools of Barna's trade and the magic of the photographic image as it comes, comes to life. And I, I really love this one. But I think the one next to it, Ever Young Studio, that was his first studio that he set up in the 50s. Um, so this was the studio he was using when Ghana became independent. Um, and he was only in his 20s when he set the studio up. My parents knew about this studio because um, they moved from Ghana to here when they were like 17 and 18. Okay. Um, so they were in Accra at the time. Oh, um, right. Right. And so like I mentioned 
James Barner both like in 2016 when I met him and more recently um, my mum gave me the same story about knowing about this this studio being like really well known in not just in Accra but in Ghana full stop yes yes and we actually had the honour of James visiting a couple of weekends ago we saw him dancing in the kind of main hall and just looking really pleased with yeah with with the fact that he was being celebrated which is really gorgeous yeah 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 yeah, I really want, he's such a, I mean, having spoken to him quite a bit on the phone, he's just really exuberant and, really and generous. And generous. Yeah. 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 Could you tell us what's next for this exhibition space uh, after this James Barner exhibition is over? Well, I'll be very sad to see this go because I really <laughs> love this work, but what we've got coming next is equally exciting and it takes over the whole museum virtually, which is Grayson's Art Club. Cool. So, yeah, that's going to be in here, it's going to be upstairs, it's going to be in our art galleries and wildlife galleries, and then it's going to be on the ground floor as well. We're just looking at all of the artworks at the moment, it's so exciting. Okay, so we're going to wander through the other art galleries and straight downstairs to where we have a, a new commission that you might have already encountered when you came into the museum. So we'll wander down now. This is a mural called A Movement, Not a Moment. And it came about after the um, Black Lives Matter demonstration last year in Bristol when the Colston statue was toppled. One of our patrons who's done a lot of work with us contacted me and said I'd really like to commission an artist to make a work about Black Lives Matter. And we unanimously selected Jasmine Thompson for this particular work. How about if we have a closer look and I can tell you a bit about it and you can talk to me about the things that leap out at you. Yeah, I, this Colston statue in the middle and being the only section of the, of the illustration that has, you know, the splatter of red and blue on it, yes. it's just fantastic. I remember cheering when I saw the video <laughs> footage of this happening um, because it was just such a pivotal moment. So it, the drawing was actually launched on the anniversary of the demonstration, but she made it in public. So while she was drawing, people were coming into the museum and that was a really interesting spectacle. And she was very happy for that, to be like that and to chat to people while she was drawing. And she did get a lot of interest, people wanting to take pictures. And that, that's continued since the drawing launched. It does feel like a piece that's just like brimming with emotion. There are some like really painful parts of this whereby like, you know, you're looking at and recognising these names that are being etched in the ground by yeah. this this young man and kind of seeing... But then seeing that against the the real joy, the smoke pan, even the way that the, the figures are standing and, and smiling and being like this woman who's wearing a, a black blazer who just looks very content. And then seeing that against the against the statue which has been pulled down and is like sort of battered and bruised and has this these colours on them it's yeah there's so much going on that's just like pulling me in lots of different directions the first thing I saw was with these two at the front actually this young woman um, 
and who you might assume to be her father, like looking on, but this like real tenderness that's going on, going on in that exchange. From this little girl. Yeah. 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 It's like really, yeah. I don't know. Just like it really stood out to me as soon as I saw it. Um, just like her, like the sense of freedom that um, that it feels like she has, and the way that he's he's looking at her. Yeah. Like I, I don't know. Last year was it felt very important and at at that like exact moment where things were happening and it also felt very hopeful that it wasn't it, to kind of echo the the title that it wasn't just a a moment but something that would continue yeah. to move and continue yeah. to to go yeah it's it's such a gorgeous image it's the overwhelming feeling is despite all of the grief in this image is joy like there is a lot of there's a lot of joy here and i agree it is a very british street <laughs> Like it's a it very is. British <laughs> image. Like it's even these four look like they've come out yeah, of the like, Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvin. They look like they've just wandered out of maybe James Barney's exhibition or maybe slightly yeah, before just, then, yeah. just right into this uh, this illustration. It's so special, and I think it really speaks to the multitudes that blackness can be and what often isn't afforded. And it's really beautiful to see these black figures just occupying space and, yeah. and that, having that space. Yeah, it's, it's really special. What kind of fell out from last year in the, in the protests? Because it feels like it's really reverberated through this building and through the people that work here. I think that there was, there was a call to action and I hope that, similarly to Jasmine's title of her mural, you know, I hope it is, you know, a movement and not simply a, a moment. But it was just really cool to get a glimpse into how Bristol mobilised and how I think this city is just, like, notoriously a very kind of political, very well-organised place with such a strong sense of community. So, yeah, it was, it was such a pleasure to, to just get a, a really small insight into that. I'm Will Taylor, and I was part of Bristol Museum's Young Collective behind the Uncomfortable Truths Project. It was a collaboration with the museum where we researched and discussed hidden stories connected to certain items. Then we made podcasts giving the different perspectives on the 10 artifacts. You could listen to them at each item. So we're just here at the start of the Uncomfortable Truths Trail here in the, the sort of like main foyer, the atrium. And we're looking at this massive painting called the Delhi Durba. It's depicting this big ceremonial procession in India in 1903. Oh, there's a QR code here which I'll scan so we can hear what the Uncomfortable Truth team thought of it. Here's a clip from the podcast. This painting goes by the name the Delhi Dubar. It goes by another name, doesn't it, Donal? Yes, it is also called the State Entry into Delhi. It was painted by Roger McKenzie. The State Entry into Delhi is a huge oil painting on canvas of a Dubar procession which took place in the early 1900s. It is 6 metres and 20 feet long in a heavy wooden frame carved with verses from the Quran, we believe. The Delhi Dubar, which means Court of Delhi, was a mass assembly organised by the British at Coronation Park, Delhi, India, to mark the succession of an emperor or empress of India. In front of the mosque is a broad sandy road. Which I feel like 
this painting is very one-sided it doesn't show the exchange of rebellions and discomfort uh, within the locals uh, who lived in the subcontinents. Will, can you mind telling us a little bit about the Uncomfortable Truths project? Yeah, so the Uncomfortable Truths is literally a trail. So you sort of walk into the museum, you start there, you see the Delhi Durban on the left. Uh, then you have these audio pieces that um, expose you to more the other narratives around the pieces. On your journey around the museum, you see these specific artifacts that have these kind of dubious histories. And as a visitor, you, you just get a new perspective on, on sort of not only the exhibition itself, but also how museums work um, and the history behind everything as well. So you can find it from the museum website, but it's also hosted on a SoundCloud page too. So you don't necessarily have to be at the museum to experience it, but being in a museum to experience it is the best way. So yeah, I, I thought it'd be really cool to, to show you guys this piece because I sort of learned a lot about messaging through and messaging in sort of gallery spaces and museums and just how history's been told, do you know what I mean? So to, when I first look at this picture, I was just like, yep, it's a picture of a procession. But then there were colonial messaging being put through it. So that's like an Indian building, like a, a building in Delhi, but none of the local natives are actually allowed to be viewing this procession from that advantageous point. It was very intentional that all of the people from Delhi and all of the people from India could not be seen at a higher ground than the royals and the British. And um, I was like, damn. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I was just like, this, this, that messaging is so subliminal. It's so perpetuated that you walk into here and you see Western history and you don't question it at all. It's just really informative. Like, it, it reminds me to maintain that inquisition, be inquisitive and... And to do stuff like make sure you go galleries with a kid. So then a kid's like, why is that over there? And you're like, yeah, why is that over there? Yeah, I was just like, it's so interesting that you drew our attention over to just the kind of composition of the, of the painting, Will. And just saying that, you know, up top, you can really see the kind of typical kind of dress of, you know, English aristocracy and royalty. And then equally kind of on the ground, then you have, you know, it kind of peters out on these steps of the, you know, kind of people who are part of the indigenous population and maybe being of a kind of certain class, maybe an upper caste, but, um, and as we kind of trickle down, we're slightly interrupted here with the procession, but as we kind of come over here, then it gets, you know, uh, you can assume that maybe these people are kind of from lower caste, so I think that that's just, yeah, just a really, like, really interesting image and really cool to hear the beginning of, of what we were getting in terms of, yeah, of what the interpretations were uh, around this. I, I love painting as a medium, like both what's being like explicitly said and also like what's being implied, like the framing and the way that the procession cuts through the middle of everything to say like this is the most important thing, the way that like everyone who's viewing at the top has space and has been like allowed to kind of like gather in a way in their own terms and then everyone especially down in this like bottom right hand corner is just clustered and pressed up together in like just being like well you know you are expected to be here but there's no space that's going to be afforded for you what is what is supposed to be the subject and who also whose stories aren't being told the people on the ground 
it's an intriguing painting in itself, but just like all of the different meanings that could emerge from critiquing and questioning are, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's just so much to be said about the value in the perspective of young people, particularly in Bristol, because like I said, you know, I really rate this city in terms of how people mobilise here, how much community, the sense of community, how strong it is. And so it's really cool just to see that, just seeing the perspective of young people being being kind of in and around the museum space and them thinking critically about what does it mean for this work to sit here. I think growing up, I didn't have a huge sense of interaction with museums. It kind of was something that I had to to go out and do on my own because they didn't feel like there were it didn't feel like there were structures that were in place that kind of appealed to younger people. I think something that the Bristol Museum and Art Gallery has done really well is have this this program which means that young people can not only be involved but also interrogate what museum spaces mean. I think that generally something that young people do really well is to like get right in there and and ask why is something like this why has something always been like this um i think it's important that we have strands that appeal to to younger people because they kind of are the ones that will be here in in the future and and hopefully will be encouraging people below them to to go and engage and to interrogate So we've just come from upstairs and kind of walked down right through the kind of permanent collection space where <laughs> there are all of these, you know, various animals of different species, some of which have been stuffed, <laughs> look very real, um, and I think some of which are replicas. Um, so we're standing in the room at the moment uh, with a lot of glass casings which contain various different animals in it. And in front of us, we have these rhinoceros uh, two who are looking at each other, one of them with their mouth agape that's I'm looking right into, uh, and the other one who's kind of got its head bent to, to the other one. Cool. Uh, I'm going to scan this QR code here and find a bit more out about this rhinoceros. Hi. And welcome to the Uncomfortable Truths podcast, brought to you by Bristol Museum and Art Gallery and produced by us, students from the University of the West of England. These podcasts show some of our research and some of our own thoughts about the objects in Bristol Museum and Art Gallery, their hidden stories and what they represent to us. Jackson is a rhinoceros, or a rhino for short. Have you ever seen a live rhino? Maybe on the telly, or even the zoo. Jackson got scared and turned around, but couldn't see his mommy anywhere. His mommy was also scared and ran away very quickly, but Jackson was still a baby and wasn't fast enough. These people came and took him away. They took him away from his friends, they took him away from his mommy, there's no easy way to tell that story, is there? It's the, it's the great thing about the way that group, that team decided to do their project. You know, it's, it's great storytelling and it, it, the, the whole spectrum of the way like we all chose to do our individual art, artefacts. Everyone had this really weighty thing and everyone chose really different ways to deliver that 
that sort of weight that that the point of the story, the punchline, or however you want to put it. So uh, one of the things we were asked to do was make sure it was accessible to a wide range of audiences. You know, it wasn't very, didn't have to be super academic or like really dumbed down. I think we sort of all came to a point where what we were hoping to do was create awkward conversations on the way home. So it's like for a 12 year old kid, eight year old kid to have listened to that. And then on the drive home, they like asked their parents, like, why was it okay to steal a rhino and kill it before it grown up? You know, like it encouraged more of a discourse around it effectively. On the occasions I've taken my baby cousin to the museum, he like is obsessed with rooms like this. Every time I see him, I will take him to the British Museum, and it's a nice way to kind of mark his growth because he looks and sounds different every time we visit. And the lines of questioning are like perhaps more urgent every time because he's like stepping into his consciousness, and it's like, yeah, you, he's gaining more and more understanding. He doesn't talk very much. Um, but you place him in this setting and it's like something comes, comes alive because there is so much to, to think and to talk about. And it's, yeah, it's really intriguing when you, just, when you allow children space, when you're just like, here is, here is some space to think and to feel and let's see what you come up with. But I do think that there is something to, that that group did so well in that narrative and building that narrative up is that, first of all, you know, kind of humanising the animal and giving it, an, you know, giving the rhino a name and then also thinking about, you know, how the, I guess the colonisation of space and of nature, because this is a, you know, this is an animal that doesn't, you know, there aren't many, there aren't very many left. I think here it says that in 1997, there were only 100 or 270 left and so, you know, kind of when you think about the kind of general climate emergency now in the kind of 2021 context, and it looks very different. Um, so we can probably assume that number is uh, significantly lower. Um, and I think, yeah, there's something there's something in the project that's so, you know, vast in its understandings and its critiques of what it means to kind of harbour these things. Yeah, like how does the natural world become a space that then is has violence inflicted onto it? How is that something that we identify with? And, you know, like you said so well, Will, like how is that then something we convey to a younger audience who is supposed to be fun for them to engage with? And actually there's this like really, you know, there's, I was going to say there's a dark undertone, but actually I think the whole kind of sense of the story is that it's not, it's an overtone, it's, the, it's central to the story that, you know, animals were displaced, they were put in spaces that they weren't meant to be in. I think it speaks a lot to yeah, that kind of general experience of, of what happened to lands uh, when people came and, you know, enacted uh, violence onto them. really enjoyed that. <laughs> I feel like we've seen so much. It was such a pleasure to be talked through the kind of curatorial decisions that were made in the James Barner exhibition. Mm -hmm. It was really good to hear from Will about the Uncomfortable Truth Project and just really getting such a strong sense of the discussions that were happening in the room, mm. how collaborative the project sounded, um, and, yeah, just the importance of putting, like, the perspectives of people who were really kind of poking at the, at the structures, at the purpose of museum spaces. I feel like whenever we view stuff together, there's, like, a... The discussion starts straight away. 
like even through like looks and glances, like it's not always words, but also knowing that we'll walk away from this and there'll be so much to discuss. Um, the joy of going to these spaces with you, whether it's like gallery, museum, theatre, cinema, is that like I learn more about you and about myself in the conversation and discussions that we are having. That's so kind. Yeah, I, I like to listen <laughs> to you. And so it's always, yeah, it's just always intriguing to me what, what comes off the back of like seeing, of both of us seeing the same thing, but you having a different response and how like so much of like your, not just like your artistic practice, but every day is related to like the care of people. And so that's something that I think was reinforced today. Thanks for listening to Meet Me at the Museum with me, Caleb Azuma-Nelson. And me, Esme Orman, at the Bristol Museum and Art Gallery. If you like this episode of the podcast, please rate, subscribe or tell a friend. And don't forget, you can show your love for museums with a National Art Pass. It gives you great benefits at hundreds of venues whilst raising money to support them.